Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> um, as you rightly pointed out, Will, um, he's a good friend of Clarence Thomas's. They go way back together. They were pals when they were both clerks in an appeals court here in D.C., and by all indications, have remained that way ever since. Leo also shares, as far as our reporting showed us and from the interviews and the research we did, Leo shares this kind of worldview that Clarence Thomas has espoused and that other conservative Supreme Court justices have put forward. Some people call it originalism. Other versions of it have been called textualism, but really we're talking about a very, very strict reading of the Constitution. Hey, welcome back, faithful political listeners and viewers. If you're watching us on our YouTube channel, I am your political host, and I'm joined uh, by your faithful host, Josh Bertram. How's it going, Josh? Living my best life. And we are joined today by Andy Kroll, uh, who's an investigative journalist at ProPublica and author of the upcoming book, A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich and the Age of Conspiracy. But before we hear more about his book, um, Andy is here to um, talk to us about a an investigation that him and his team um, recently uh, uncovered that, that deals with, you know, Political advocacy donations um, that helped push our our courts more conservative um, and helped end federal abortion rights, um, as well as, you know, sort of make the Supreme Court lean more right. So welcome to the show, Andy. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, no, no problem. So so maybe, maybe you can start us off first, um, kind of at the 30,000 foot view um, of the story that you wrote um, along with your team and and kind of tell us what, what sort of motivated you and your team to, to go after it. Yeah, so my reporting colleagues and I, uh, Justin Elliott, who works with me at ProPublica, which is an investigative newsroom, and then Andrew Perez, who is an investigative reporter at our partner organization, The Lever, on this project. We, in the course of our reporting, uh, got our hands on some documents, as good investigative journalists do, that uncover what is quite simply the biggest single donation that we that we know about as the public um, in American history. Full stop. It's a $1.6 billion gift from a business tycoon out of Chicago, a 90-year-old fellow named Barry Side. And what Barry Side essentially did was give his entire business that he had built over his period of 50 years, 60 years to an extremely influential and now increasingly well-known political activist uh, based out of the Washington area named Leonard Leo. Leonard Leo is someone who, if you haven't heard of him, highly recommend reading our story and, and, and reading other things on him because he's one of these figures who, um, you know, again, isn't really on the level of a an elected official, uh, a senator, a congresswoman, congressman, a president, certainly not. But his influence on our politics, our courts, really our everyday lives at this point is pretty pronounced. And now Leonard Leo has uh, an additional $1.6 billion that he uh, has pretty much at his sole control 
from this a businessman in Chicago to continue this project of remaking really the country that Leo has been working on again for decades leading up to this moment. So we found out about this donation. We reported as hard as we could toward how did this money get transferred? Why was it secretive for as long as it was until us and some reporters at the New York times uncovered it. And then of course, what does Leonard Leo want to do with this huge mountain of money that he's now sitting on? Well, that, that's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's two jokes that kind of come to mind and these are probably not going to be great. Maybe I'll edit them out. <laughs> but like, but like when I, when I first read about um, Leonard Leo, I, I kept thinking about like, like that scene in the wedding singer about Julia Gulia. Uh, and like, cause his name is Leo Leo, <laughs> which like, couldn't, I don't know. Couldn't shorten that name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't, <laughs> And then, and then the, and then the, the, the second thing that came, I think it's a lethal weapon reference where, where remember Leo gets like whatever Leo wants, Leo gets anybody. No. All right. Faint, oh, kinda, kinda, kinda. Faint, yeah. Ringing a faint bell. <laughs> All right. Anyway. So, so uh, enough with the dad jokes, uh, but, <laughs> but c- can you, can you maybe sort of unpack a little bit more about like who these two people are? I know you, you, you sort of, you sort of touched them briefly, um, but you know, with, with regards to Barry's side and, um, Leo, I know that, you know, and I think you, you referenced it in your, in your article where, you know, Justice Thomas said that Leonard Leo may be like the third most powerful man in the country. Um, and in the world actually in the world. Yeah. The yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I'm curious if maybe you can just, just unpack who these key figures are. Um, because I think it's really central to, to your, to your reporting. Yeah, I mean that, that's what we really set out to do with this with this reporting and some follow up stories that are in the works. Just give a little teaser to uh, your audience. Um, you know, the the donation itself uh, is almost too big to, to comprehend. I mean, one point six billion with a B. That is, uh, you know, basically the size of the GDP of Belize, an entire country, more than the Democratic Party and the Republican Party spent combined in the 2020 campaign. So it's a just crazy kind of mind numbing sum. So not in addition to, to sort of putting that out there and putting it in historical context, we really wanted to know, okay, who would give their entire fortune, $1.6 billion to more or less one person to continue shaping the future of the country. So what's the deal with Barry side more or less? Why would someone ever get to that point? And then two, okay, now you're this guy, Leonard Leo, and you have this huge sum of money at your disposal. What on earth do you do with it? Can you even spend that much money uh, on politics, on activism, on courts, whatever, you name it? So, yes, those are the two key questions that we had. Um, I'll start with Leo because I think he's a good entry point. Um, As you rightly pointed out, Will, He's a good friend of Clarence Thomas's. They go way back together. They were pals when they were both clerks in an appeals court here in D.C. and by all indications have remained that way ever since. Leo also shares, as far as our reporting showed us and from the interviews and the research we did, Leo shares this kind of worldview that Clarence Thomas has espoused and that other conservative Supreme Court justices have put forward. Some people call it originalism. 
Other versions of it have been called textualism, but really we're talking about a very, very strict reading of the Constitution, more or less an interpretation of the Constitution as the people who wrote it all those hundreds of years ago directly intended it at the time they wrote it. So all of these kinds of notions of the Constitution as a living document, an evolving document, these things are, are, are not accurate. They are not operative. That is not how the Constitution should be interpreted in the year 2022. So that's Leo's sort of worldview. He is um, very Catholic, very influential within the Catholic Church, conservative as well, very anti, anti-abortion. Um, he is very conservative on a whole host of other social issues as well. You know, the positions we would associate with you know, the, the, the pretty far right in, in American politics. Um, but what Leo has chosen to do, instead of taking a path to, say, becoming a judge, which he could have done, he's a lawyer, he clerked um, at a pretty high level, or instead of becoming a politician, instead of becoming an academic, he decided he wanted to be a kind of movement builder guy. He wanted to construct more or less from the ground up a conservative legal movement that would, in his view, put the country back on the right course, uh, this sort of originalist, textualist, um, more small government, low tax direction than the direction it was on, which he viewed as, as totally wrong. So he built an organization called the Federalist Society. Federalist Society is it's a sort of a training ground, an incubator, a pipeline for conservative lawyers, politicians, and judges. You know, it's a tiny little nonprofit organization when Leo joins in the early 90s. Today, it's an absolute juggernaut. You know, raises tens of millions of dollars. Most, if not all, of the 200-plus judges that were put on different benches, different seats during the Trump administration were Federalist Society members, including the conservative justices on the Supreme Court in the sixth justice supermajority. And then Leo continues to sort of expand his ambitions. He builds this network of organizations and he raises tons of money to try to get judges on the bench, help elect conservative politicians, and again, just sort of build this groundswell to push the country in the direction that he believes it should be going. And again, this sort of more conservative, small government, low tax, um, originalist, Clarence Thomas style vision. Uh, And, you know, he's been doing it for decades, Leonard Leo. He is an incredible fundraiser, raising really hundreds of millions of dollars over the last 15, 20 years to fund all of this work I've been talking about, the Federalist Society, but a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, and, you know, I think after the Trump administration, when he was instrumental in getting those three Supreme Court justices on the bench, I think there were people in Leo's world who thought, well, geez, man, you know, hang up your spurs. Like, what, what more are you going to do than, than get a six-vote supermajority on the Supreme Court? But clearly that's not the case because, getting to our second guy here, Barry Side. In 2020 and 2021, Barry Side, more or less in secret, until journalists came around and uncovered this two years later, uh, gives Leonard Leo his fortune, his $1.6 billion fortune to spend over the next few decades. Barry Side is a libertarian, 
we're told from people who know him, who've worked with him, who've gotten money from him, you know, doesn't necessarily share the, the sort of Catholic or in other realms, sort of the, the, the Christian approach, the Christian worldview of, of some in the conservative movement, but he's hardcore on low or no regulations, small government, low taxes, get the government out of my business, get the government out of my company. You know, he's, from what we've been told, again, uh, you know, extremely skeptical of the science of climate change. He is extremely skeptical of agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency. You know, he just doesn't believe in a sort of regulatory agency model, <laughs> like the one that we currently have. Yeah. And so there's clearly an overlap between these two players, Barry Side and Leonard Leo. It's not a one for one, but it's enough that they are. Uh, clearly, there's a you know a historic partnership that's been forged there, cemented by this donation. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. So, Andy, what's interesting to me is one of the key things that you know you have covered and that's talked about a lot is the idea of dark money right these um political nonprofits that are able to essentially in some ways it seems like be as pass-throughs for people to anonymously donate and then the money to be used in whatever way you know they want, I mean, you know, there, there's regulations, you know, at some level, and you can correct me, uh, whatever they are. But mm -hmm. help us understand, number one, the concept of dark money yep. and how, it, how it's affected politics and your, and your opinion of it and, 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 you know, the evidence, the factually based evidence of how it's affected um, our political system. But another thing that comes with that to me is how do we know about Barry um, if uh, we're, it's supposed to be anonymous? I guess he didn't give it anonymously. I'm just wondering, like, how do we know about this big, huge donation? Um, no one knows about my donations. So why? I mean, unless I tell them. So. I mean, is it once you get to a certain amount of money, everyone gets the right to know? I'm just wondering what uh, what, what you think about that. But dark money, like help us. That's the more important thing. Help us understand that. First of all, Josh, you have to donate in order to actually have a record of donations. That's true. <laughs> so you, know you got me on that one. Yeah. Okay. But go ahead, Andy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll, I'll take those two. I'll start with the big picture. And then I can answer the, the specifics about about Barry Side's donation because that one is a little that one is a little trickier. I mean, the, the very short answer is that it wouldn't have ever been disclosed. He, his identity wouldn't have ever been disclosed if not for 
journalism, basically. If the, system, right. the way the system Just works, it okay. shouldn't have been disclosed, but I can get to that. So sure. I think a good, um, a good starting point on that is the 2010 Supreme Court decision, Citizens United. Citizens United was a landmark ruling for American politics and money. And what Citizens United said, this is a 5-4 decision um, with the conservative majority and, and then Justice Kennedy casting the decisive vote. What, 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 what Citizens United said was that you could not limit political giving. So me giving money to a, a PAC, a political committee, and you could not limit that committee's spending on ads, on online advertising, you name it, attack ads, soft focus ads, whatever. You couldn't limit any of that as long as that spending was independent from, say, will for president. Now, if you're trying to give that money to will for president, there were limits because if I'm giving will for president $10 million, there's a possibility for corruption there. He's going to feel indebted to me. He's going to want to do me favors. If you, if I put that money into um, Everybody Loves Will for America 2022, and we're spending it to help you, but we don't want to, you know, I'm not spending that money to help you, but I'm not giving it to you directly. The Supreme Court said you can spend all the money you want, raise all the money you want. And that gave us what we, what we now know as super PACs. So those super PACs are basically these turbocharged, money-drenched bazookas in American politics. And that's why you see donors, I mean, everyone from a George Soros to a Sheldon Adelson to Koch brothers to Charles Schwab, you name it, giving hundreds of millions of dollars cumulatively to these super PACs that then tried to elect anyone from George Bush, uh, excuse me, Jeb Bush, to uh, Joe Biden, to uh, any candidate in, you know, running for president these days, and, and a lot of candidates running for Senate and even House now. So Citizens United is this watershed moment. What Citizens United also did was it said that if you are a nonprofit group, which is sort of a different breed than this super PAC that created, you also have these nonprofit groups. And if you're a nonprofit group, you can be more active in politics than you were before. You can be more aggressive. You can spend more of your money on politics than you could previously, thanks to Citizens United. So you have this double effect. On the one hand, you have these super PACs, new on the scene, thanks to Citizens United. And on the other hand, you have these, non these nonprofits, we call them dark money nonprofits, that had kind of been around and had been a fixture of politics, but now have had the sort of, you know, some of the, uh, the restraints taken off. They've been, they've, they've, they've been free to, to do more. And the key thing about Citizens United is what the Supreme Court said was that all of this big spending, all of this big giving, all those millions flowing into Will for President and, and, and the money flowing to, to help elect you know, Will for President, it's all okay if there's transparency, sunlight, this is the best disinfectant. Transparency will ensure that there's not corruption, there's not any kind of quid pro quo going on. Well, that whole notion has been completely blown up by these dark money groups. And these dark money groups are now spending together 
on the left and on the right billions of dollars in American politics because the rules have been stripped back, because the IRS has been so underfunded and intimidated that it really, you know, isn't the cop on the beat that it used to be for these organizations. And so it's kind of out of control. There's this whole kind of shadow world of money being raised, money being spent, that the public, reporters, watchdogs, etc., we don't really have a clear view into. And it, it's becoming this sort of bipartisan arms race at this point, where these nonprofits are just raising more and more money, you know, hundreds of millions. And now we're seeing, you know, donations above a billion and they're spending this money in huge amounts. And there's so little transparency here, which means I think, I, I believe in from our reporting would say that the potential for corruption is so much higher. Now, Getting to your point, Josh, about Barry Side, you know, the, the Barry Side basically gave his money to Leonard Leo, and Leonard Leo created one of these dark money nonprofits to take the money and then to ultimately spend it over a period of time. And the way they built this deal was such that Barry Side avoided a tax bill, more or less, of hundreds of millions of dollars that he would have been hit with if he had just sold his company himself. Um, when, when, when he did sell this company, when the company was sold to a private corporation called Eaton. Um, but he didn't do that. He gave the company to Leonard Leo, to a Leonard Leo nonprofit. That company, uh, that nonprofit then sold the company. They get the extra hundred million and Barry side avoids the tax bill. It's a very, qu quite a lucrative little loophole there. Um, but Barry side wouldn't have ever been public if we had received documents about the deal. The New York Times had done its own reporting about the deal. We would have known maybe later this year or next year that Leonard Leo had started this group and that, oh my gosh, look at that. They've got 1.6 billion in the bank. Where did that come from? We wouldn't have known because they don't have to tell us. That's how the law works, amazingly. But again, that's what investigative reporting is for. And so we were, in this case, we managed to sort of pry this information into the sunlight, but, um, you know, there, there could be more donations like this out there that we don't know about because that's how the system works. I mean, really, the scandal here is what's legal, as Michael Kinsley once put it. It's not what's illegal. This is everything that happened here, as best as we can tell, was totally legal and still completely scandalous. How did how did Barry's side get get his money? Like like his wealth originated somewhere. So, like, how, how did he get his wealth? Yeah, back in the 1950s, he returned to his native Chicago, where he was born and raised, and he started working as an assistant for an inventor, a guy named Graham Tripp. Um, and Tripp was a sort of specialist in headlights, of all things. I mean, he gets this 50s auto boom. He invents these different kinds of headlights, including the sort of rotating early version of the sort of like emergency headlight or sort of a spinning, rotating light. And starts building a, a company around these inventions called Trip Manufacturing. Barry Side is his assistant and eventually Barry Side buys out the owner and takes over this company. And they, you know, they, they produce power strips. You know, if you look under your desk and see the box that all your stuff's plugged into, there's a chance that the Trip light Power Strip, which is the name of the company now, Triplight. But what Barry Side really 
did in a, a prescient sort of way was set his company up to take advantage of the, the computer revolution. So starting in the 80s and 90s, he and his colleagues at Triplight recognized this, this you know, boom coming in personal computers. And then beyond that, you know, cloud computing, big data, all the sort of technology that we have now around this massive, you know, uh, online infrastructure that we have. And they make just a bazillion kinds of products to supply that computer boom and then the cloud computing boom, the big data era. You know, we describe Triplight in the piece as, you know, the sort of pick and shovel company for the, 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 the technology boom, just as there were pick and shovel storefronts, you know, during the gold rush, you know, people went out for their gold, but so they had to buy their picks and their shovels and their, mm-hmm. you know, all of their other accessories somewhere in Deadwood or whatever the town <laughs> was yeah. be- before they went out and started panhandling for gold. And Triplight was a, was a pick and shovel company of the digital and computer revolution and by all indications did it well and made Barry Side a really wealthy man. So much so that his company, you know, was valued at a billion six by the time Side in his late eighties decided he wanted to cash out and and then give give the company to to Leonard Leo. Man, that's amazing. I um <clears throat> this whole thing, I'm just trying to wrap my head around it, you know. Because obviously like that donation is so huge and um for it to be like I I totally agree, like transparency is so important for um, like for corruption, like when there's, when there isn't transparency, the likelihood of corruption, I mean, it just feels intuitive that it would increase significantly. Definitely. Um, like, I, I guess the tension I feel inside is I'm not a libertarian, although I did vote libertarian in 2020, but I'm not a libertarian that full, you know, full blooded. I, I like a lot of their, of the ideas. Um, but my, I guess my, my question is like, dig in a little bit more maybe to what is it that is so bad about, like, what is it that's so bad about a $1.6 billion donation? Besides the fact, like, why is it different? I mean, obviously it is different than the donations I could give, but what, why, what, I, I understand that it's different and what it can do, but what makes it, what makes it, especially because it's legal, mm-hmm. what makes it so scandalous? You had mentioned that. What is it? Because I understand what you're saying. And I, and I, a part of me, the reason I'm asking is a part of me feels that with you, like, whoa, that's like, they just gave that and this guy has control of all that money. But then again, like, if someone wanted to give my church a one point six billion dollar donation, would I would <laughs> I like uh, be against that or like <laughs> uh, sure get some tax you know relief? I mean that's not that's not my issue. Like that's that's a that's you know the legislators got to change that you right. know if 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 we don't like that. So help help us understand what is it because what it sounds like is that Citizens United is very extremely controversial the decision and it's really changed politics um and i guess what so both sides are doing it 
almost equally, I guess there hasn't been that big of a donation on the Democratic side. But what is, what, what's the issue? Why, why is it so bad? Why do you feel like, what, what, what is it that's going on, do you think, for us when we hear that? Yeah, I would point to a couple of sticking points or a couple of flaws in the system that I think that this donation highlights. I don't think the, the, the 1.6 billion on its face because it's that high or because it is uh, coming from this one particular person is in some way bad or, I mean, I don't really put a value on it at all. I mean, what it's, important to put out there because it's a new record as far as we know, but you can find donations in that ballpark from George Soros to a, a, a group of organizations that he has funded for a long time. There's a son of one of the Koch brothers who we've, we, in the course of doing this story actually found that he had also given, uh, you know, more than a billion in, in stock to, to a group that he runs. So, I wouldn't sort of put a value on any of those, but I think that they, you know, the, the, they shine a light on some flaws in our system. And, 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 and it's just that the, the wattage of that light is so much brighter because the money is so big. And these, these are what I'd say the flaws are. So the first one is the rules for what these these dark money nonprofits can do. And for the tax nerds in your audience, we're, we're talking about a 501c4 nonprofit organization. 501c3s are charities. They are, uh, you know, very common. They, are, they, yes. they, they do the Lord's work. They do all kinds of, you know, social safety, net, community support, faith, you name it. So, and those are you know, you give money to a 501c3, they're not spending money on politics. They're spending money on, yeah. the, you, mm-hmm. know, you know, your classic char- you know, charitable causes. What's happened with these 501c4s is that in the last decade, in part due to Citizens United, and in part due to a weakened and intimidated IRS, is that they've pushed the envelope more and more into political activity they can they 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 they, they you know their the rules in the irs are that you know these 501c4s can't make politics their primary cause but where is that line well the irs won't say is it you know 60 40 60 non-political 40 political or is it you know 49.9999999 just under that 50 percent mark we don't know and the irs won't say and it's so, you know, you have organizations that on all sides of the, the political spectrum, pushing the envelope there, both getting as close to that 50% as they can, or running ads that seem really political, but they're saying, no, 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 that's not politics. That's just about issues. Um, you know, they're, 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 they're being a little disingenuous with what they're really doing. And what's frightening about that is that, you know, the money going into these organizations, again, they don't have to disclose their donors like a, even a super PAC does. So the money going into these groups is, is opaque. The ways in which they spend their money is 
even more opaque, especially on the political kinds of stuff or that quasi political stuff. But they're really aggressive in politics. They've become their you know almost a sort of shadow political committee. And so that transparency that the voters need, the you know, the media needs, the watchdogs need to make sure that that corruption isn't happening, to make sure that there isn't this sort of outsized influence where one person with a ton of money can sort of drown out the voices of millions of people. It's just not there with these dark money groups. So again, that's not necessarily specific to Barry's side or his donation, but again, it shines a light on this problem. What I would say is a problem, what, what sort of good government activists would say is a problem. So there's that piece of it is that they're more political than ever and they're shadowy, more shadowy, there you go, than ever as well. The other piece of this is that Barry side by giving his company to this politically active nonprofit group, again, avoided a pretty massive tax bill. We don't know for sure, but based on all the reporting we did, all the tax experts we talked to, we're talking like tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And what that essentially means is that the American taxpayer, writ large, subsidized that donation to the group that Barry Side gave his company to that then you know, got the proceeds of the, of the money, this $1.6 billion. That group, by the way, is called the Marble Freedom Trust. So it doesn't seem fair, and I don't think you'd find many American taxpayers who'd think it fair, that they are subsidizing donations to these po politically active groups um, because of the way the tax code works. This is a tax loophole that experts have railed against for decades at this point. They have said, you should not get to avoid a capital gains tax like Barry Side did in this case, just because you give your money to a 501c4. And again, applies to liberal 501c4s, libertarian 501c4s across the board. You get this tax break if you structure your, your deal like, like Barry Side did. So that to me also seems like a flaw in the system. And one, again, people have highlighted for years and wouldn't take that much work from lawmakers and Congress to close that that loophole. You know, you you, you mentioned the uh, the Marble Freedom Trust, and I'm wondering if maybe you can you can talk a little bit more about about that organization. Like, um, I, I'm assuming if they recently got a 1.6 billion donation, that they must be a huge organization ran by people totally unconnected to the Supreme Court or anything like that. Can you, can you maybe unpack who they are? I certainly can. And, and, uh, they are very much not what you just said. <laughs> um, the Marble Freedom Trust was the nonprofit group that was created to take Barry sides, $1.6 billion more or less, and go on to spend that money, uh, you know, shaping American courts, American politics, American life writ large. The Marble Freedom Trust is, according to its tax records, three people. And really, the person in charge is Leonard Leo, who we talked about earlier. He is the chairman and trustee. What's interesting as well about Marble Freedom Trust, and this is getting a little, little, little legal wonk kind of stuff. I'm getting into legal wonk territory here, so I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. But the Marble Freedom Trust is what it says in its name, a trust. 
It was created in Utah by a lawyer out there who was also a clerk to um, Clarence Thomas in the past. And by being a trust, it is it, 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 the, the things it has to disclose to the public are, are fewer than a corporation would be. And it consolidates control in the hands of fewer people. Really, in this case, it's Leonard Leo is the one calling the shots. These two other people who are on the quasi board. Yeah, they have some say, but it's more or less Leonard Leo in the driver's seat here. And if it was a corporation, you'd have to have a bigger board. There would be more sort of checks in place. That does not appear to be the case here. So I think this really underlines what we talked about a little bit earlier, that this is a two-person show. Barry Side gifted this huge sum to Leonard Leo. And Leonard Leo, until he decides he doesn't want to anymore, is in more or less sole control of this huge this huge pot of money in an organization that, again, we don't really know, and we won't know for years how it spends its money, the things it's trying to influence. Um, it, you know, if it ever, for some reason, did accept donations from other people, where that money would be coming from, because these these nonprofits are, are so secretive. Wow, man, it's such an amazing um, story to see how there are these decisions that are made and the intentional and unintentional consequences of these decisions that go back and, you know, more and more and more. Um, and, and they just, uh, and, and you see that things become something they simply were, were not. Um, they become something that they weren't in the past. They never intended to be. And then these consequences happen. Um, when I'm thinking about um, this entire story. Um, so you have Justice Clarence Thomas. You have this connection between him and Leonard Leo. Like how, how deep. Like how how deep do these how deep do these connections really go, and how much does like how much does Leonard Leo I mean really control like what's going like what's the what's the extent of his influence like can we overstate it can we overestimate it or is it something that would be far easier under underestimated. What 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 do you think is going on? Like, how much is he really shaping our country? I think you can overstate it. I mean, I, I, there's been some coverage of Leo in the past that described him in this sort of Svengali, you know, uh, uh, Oz behind the curtain kind of language. I don't think that that's quite accurate. I think that, and I think that that can also blur far too easily into some, you know, kind of ugly anti-Catholic tropes or stereotypes uh, in a way that, uh, in a way that people have criticized. I mean, you can go all the way back to uh, John F. Kennedy's presidency and, 
would he be controlled by the Pope from afar? And is he, you know, is he just, yes. uh, you know, uh, uh, listening to the Vatican and dictating America positive? You can get into some ugly stuff there. And, and, and I think sometimes that, that has been, that has been done with respect to Leonard Leo, but I do think you can absolutely understate his influence as well. And I think he would probably prefer it that way if he was just seen as, Oh, he's this, you know, fundraiser and friend of, uh, you know, conservative Supreme court justices. He, you know, helps fund groups that are, you know, fighting the conservative cause. And I think that that also understates his influence. You know, I would remind your audience as well that if you remember um, in early 2016, sorry, spring of 2016, one thing that Donald Trump decided to do was to release a list of names of judges that he would put on the Supreme yeah. Court if he was elected. Looking back, that decision from all the reporting and the reading I've done helped make Trump more palatable, I think, in the eyes of um, Christian voters, Catholic voters, just movement conservative voters when he put out those names. And there were a lot of recognized, recognizable names on there, folks who I think a lot of voters would want on the Supreme Court. Leonard Leo was instrumental in, in what is now just called the list. He was uh, instrumental in having the idea to put a list out there, just the strategy alone. And he played a key role in helping pick the names on that list. Of course, the overlap with the names on that list in the Federalist Society was pretty great, as you might imagine. So you have his influence there, and some of those names ended up on the Supreme Court. So that is a clear line of, of, of showing how Leonard Leo really influenced the Trump administration. Leo was also an advisor to President Trump throughout all four years on all of these other judges, more than 200 that got put on the bench. So he's really influential there. And I think that if you just look at the amount of money he's raised and the kind of network that he's built, you know, he is probably singular at this point in American politics. And I'm trying to think of someone who sits atop not just the amount of money we're, that we wrote about in our story, but all of these different organizations that are fighting different pieces of the policy, political, judicial battles. I just don't think that there's anyone quite like him. He has figured out how to master this political money system that we've just got done talking about, the one that Citizens United helped bring into being the one that the dark money, uh, 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 rise of dark money helping into being, he has mastered that, I think, more than anyone else in terms of translating that financial capital into political capital. So he deserves the, the, the monikers of, you know, one of the most influential, if not influential actors of the last 30 years, I would say. That's amazing. You know, it's funny because... I actually met a priest and went on a retreat and I met a priest who had both Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh as students <laughs> as at Georgetown prep. Wow. And I thought about that. And then hearing this, like, um, 
like Leo, like hearing it, um, it's pretty amazing to see that, like that connection, like these people coming out of, you know, the, uh, these, um, these schools, like you just start to see, like, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but there are just certain groups of people and certain like, um, institutions that produce mm -hmm. like that seem to produce the top leaders. And I'm not sure if it's because they're that good or they've just become that that institution that's known for that. And then and then it happens. And it's just amazing to see um like I don't know what to think about it. It's it's hard to know how really to feel about it. Um but it's it's an unbelievable story. Now help connect us from this story that you're doing, um if you can make connections from this story that you're doing to um, the your your newest book that you're that you're that's coming out, um, you can tell us about the book and we're, we're kind of moving, um, you know, uh, turning uh, directions to talk about your book here for a few. Um, but you know, help us connect the dots here. What inspired the book and how does it connect to your work that you've already done? Yeah, it, 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 I think what connects these two stories, the Leonard Leo Berry side story, story I tell in my book, at a really fundamental level is a desire to just understand what the heck is happening in the country that I live in. What? Oh, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> okay. just fell off my lap. Um, it, yeah, it, you know, I, I, one thing I love about being a journalist is it is the best job to have when, you know, you are just sort of forever curious or perplexed, mystified, every once in a while a little despondent, too, um, about, like, why things are happening in our country, how we sort of ended up at the point that we ended up at um, uh, in our history. And I just, I can't, I mean, these are the questions that are always sort of ping-ponging around my head um, at any given time of like, why, you know, why why this, why now? And so with, with Leo and, and Barry's side, you know, it is how did this one fellow, Leonard Leo, get to be so influential and, and, and how did our court system get to be to where it is right now? A six-three supermajority in the Supreme Court, um, you know, major precedents from 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 years past. I mean, a moment when it feels like Leo and his allies are really winning. How, how did we get there? How did that happen? Why did it happen? And you know, for the book, you know, the book just the thumbnail description of it is uh, in in the summer of twenty sixteen. A young man working for the Democratic Party here in D.C. Uh, named Seth Rich was shot and killed here in D.C. And, you know, it was a it was a really tragic event. It made local news. It made national news. Just the the the, the, the news of his death. I kind of knew him. There was a personal connection there. Um, 
I sort of ran in similar social circles here in DC. Uh, we had a lot of friends in common, friends of mine who were good friends of Seth's. We both had similar backgrounds, you know, Midwestern guys who moved to DC to try to change the world. You know, he went into politics, I went into journalism, but you know, this sort of um, naive ambition was there for both of us. Um, and, and, you know, when, when he's killed, you know, I feel sort of a tremendous loss. It's bright light extinguished in a way that, you know, I think sat heavy on a lot of us. And then I thought that, you know, his family would have the space to grieve. They would have privacy. You know, we would sort of gather a year later on the one year anniversary of his birthday or of his death and, and remember him, remember who he was, why he mattered. But, you know, we would move on just like we do when, when someone we know or, or in, uh, someone we were friends with um, passed away. But that's not what happened. What happened is that Seth's life and death became this international conspiracy theory. It became a political football. It became a Fox News talking point and a Sean Hannity rallying cry. It just transformed into this completely different thing. And I was watching this happen in real time here in Washington, D.C. And again, the, the subject of this is a guy that I kind of knew who's no longer alive. And he's now popping up in my Twitter feed and on the television shows that I watch for work. And uh, Julian Assange of WikiLeaks is, is invoking Seth Rich um, as part of some nefarious plot around the 2016 election. It's just this insane and completely inexplicable series of events that happen after Seth is killed. And, you know, eventually I got to the point where I had to sort of take off my, you know, Midwestern guy in D.C. hat and put on my investigative reporter hat, <clears throat> excuse me, and just try to understand what happened here. Why did this happen? How did this normal guy become sucked into this conspiratorial vortex? And not only did it suck in him, but it sucked in his friends, his family, his co-workers, people I know popping up in memes on Reddit. They're part of the, you know, the inside job that Seth Rich masterminded, that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I just, I started writing about Seth Rich and what was happening online and what Fox News was, was doing. Um, I mean, the, the, the reason Fox News gloms out, the, the, the core of the conspiracy theory was that it was Seth Rich who had hacked his own employer, the DNC in 2016, and given a bunch of emails to WikiLeaks to try to hurt Hillary Clinton when everyone who had studied this intelligence agency, cybersecurity experts, et cetera, said, no, that was, that was Russia. They're trying to disrupt the election. Like that, you know, we're pretty confident that that's what it is. And it wasn't this, this guy, Seth Rich, who was nowhere close to being a computer hacker. Um, but again, it's just one of these stories that I couldn't get out of my head and I couldn't stop thinking about. And it, it, it just felt to me like a symptom of something larger happening in America. And I wrote about it and wrote about it and wrote about it. And eventually it was like, this thing is too big to be a story. It needs to be a book. It needs to be, and you need more running room to, to capture this, this, this story. And so that's, that's what I did. And I, and I wrote this book at Death on W Street to 
to put it all in one one place and tell the sort of definitive story. Is is the is the W Wall Street? No, W is the street where he was where he was killed. Uh, not oh, that yeah. far from where I'm sitting, actually. Um, again, DC, we, we we have letters and numbers here, and, and so it's yeah, neighborhood in Northwest Washington called Bloomingdale. Um, here, here, shot and killed. Interesting. So, so is like through through the process of writing this book, like were there were there revelations or things that you learned, discovered that surprised you? Yeah, yeah. There there were a lot of things. To be honest. Um, uh, I mean, one thing I learned was that sort of conspiratorial thinking and speculating is not a partisan phenomenon. I was, you know, it fascinated me to discover that actually when I went back and sort of combed through the social media data, I was trying to figure out like, where is the first tweet where someone said, oh, actually Seth Rich was, you know, that it was a, the Clintons killed him or that he was a whistleblower who was silenced. It actually started on the political left, the far left, um, with some kind of hardcore Bernie Sanders supporters and <clears throat> supporters of the uh, Green Party candidate back then, Jill Stein, uh, because the, the, you know, the, the Seth Rich conspiracy theory would have actually kind of come to, to, to be this, as I said, from a Fox News phenomenon and a, and a conservative rallying cry, a, 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 an article of faith to the to the MAGA online world. But it didn't start there. It started on the other end. Um, mm. So I thought that that was a, kind of taught us something interesting about how these these viral theories sprung yeah. up and, and where but they like, go. Like the, the, the Jill Stein that sat at the table with Putin and Michael yeah. Flynn, like that Jill Stein? <laughs> That the very the very good sign that you mentioned. Yes, it's you know, there way out there at those fringes was where this theory, based on all of my exhaustive reporting and research, started. Um, but it's you know, it, it it's it's these conspiracy theories are also um, kind of like not to make a too too timely and, and painful comparison, but like a, like a like a virus, like a pandemic. When we say something goes viral online just as a shorthand, but there is a sort of likeness there between an actual virus and, and one of these things. What I found with in my found in my reporting was, you know, this, this, these theories about Seth had popped up online again on the, on the far left, right after he was killed in July of 2016. And they kind of, you know, hung out there for a little while and flickered a little bit and, uh, and then they started to die down, you know, two, three, four weeks after his murder. And uh, I think Seth's family thought, all right, you know, brief fit of madness online. People get crazy online, but then they'll move on to something else. And then Julian Assange of WikiLeaks invokes Seth in an interview and sort of dangles the notion that Seth was somehow his source, but doesn't actually say it. He just kind of you know, insinuates it in the in the most sort of subtle of ways, but just subtle enough to then set the internet on fire. In this time, it's on the other end of the political spectrum. So it sort of <clears throat> jumped the rails almost from the left to the right. And, and I would say that Assange was kind of a super spreader in a way because he had a huge platform, huge following. Everyone knew who he was. Everyone knows what WikiLeaks is. 
And just by sort of ever so gently dangling Seth's name in, in a few TV interviews in August of 2016, it, it blew, blew this, this, this conspiracy theory up to worldwide proportions. Wow, that, that's great. So, so is, your, is your book out now? It, it, you can pre-order it now. It's available uh, September 6th, which is the Tuesday after Labor Day. Um, awesome. Yeah. I mean, I would say that if you are fascinated by conspiracy theories of any variety, political or, you know, like the moon landing was faked or, or whatever, <laughs> uh, even the funny ones, I would, I would say pick this book up because it gets into the history. It gets into the psychology. Um, if you're a fan of true crime, absolutely. This, this book is for you. But I would also say that, you know, as, as, as heavy as some of the stuff I've just described is about the origins of this conspiracy theory, you know, act three has some redemption and it is, you know, the, the, the last third of the book is about his family's efforts first in the court of public opinion and then in the court of law to hold people accountable, including Fox News, and to try to clear Seth's name. And, and so there is justice and there's accountability at the end of this story in a way that I hope readers will find um, fulfilling. It's not just, you know, bad news, in other words. <laughs> that, 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 that's really good. I, I'm, I'm sure our audience will be all over because we had so we had uh, Mike Rothschild on the show several months ago to talk about the QAnon conspiracy. Great and Great yeah. That was a fun yes. ride for sure. <laughs> like, yeah. He knows it better awesome. than anyone. I don't know how yeah. he does it, but he, he's got it all in his head. So he really it's does. Yeah. <laughs> so, so awesome. Well, th thanks again, Andy, for uh, spending some time with us. Uh, we really, really value uh, just, just the work um, journalists yes. do in, in general. Definitely. I mean, like we've had plenty of journalists on and I, you know, I, I'm always just, I don't know, just impressed by just the work you guys do. It's like a thankless job. You know, and and especially like when when the news cycle is, you know, constantly, you know, focused on sort of the big shiny object, you know, uh, uh, I think it's important that people recognize that there are other stories such as like this one point six billion dollar donation that that will affect our lives in some shape or form. So I appreciate you uh, you investing the time and your team um, to uh, to to look into it. So th thanks again for everything. Well, thanks for for giving me the time to talk about it here and yes. uh, what you guys have built with the podcast is, is fantastic and I think uh, pretty unique uh, in the, in the podcast.